The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, that we read just a moment ago. Our study for many, 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 many Sunday mornings has been in the Gospel of Matthew, and so some of you may be very happy to hear that we're moving out of Matthew for a Sunday at least as we look into the Gospel of John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. That means that uh, they tell many of the same stories. Uh, Synoptic is a word, uh, a Greek word, two parts. Uh, Sin, S-Y-N, which means together, and opsis, which means to see. We get the word optic nerve from opsis. So a synoptic gospel are gospels that see together. Uh, The gospel of John is different from that. It's a non-synoptic gospel, and that's because it tells many stories that are not found in the other gospels. For example, uh, the first miracle that Jesus did is found in John chapter 2, which was the changing of water into wine. And that particular miracle is not recorded anyplace else but in the Gospel of John. Likewise, in John chapter 3, there's the great story of Nicodemus and the encounter that Jesus and Nicodemus had with each other as they were talking about the new birth. And out of that chapter comes one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and that is maybe the famous, most famous in the Bible, which is John 3.16. And it might seem a little bit peculiar to us that John 3.16 wouldn't be found in all of the Gospels since they say some of the same things. Why wouldn't that have been included there? Well, similarly, John chapter 4 is a unique story to the Gospel of John. Uh, He's the only one that records this, and even though it's so well-beloved, we don't find it in the other Gospel accounts. Now, again, that might seem a little bit peculiar to us that you have these two great stories, the one about Nicodemus and the one about the woman at the well that are so clear in their presentations of the gospel, and yet we find them only in the gospel of John. They're treasured stories and actually ones that we think that we really couldn't do without. And these two stories, the one about Nicodemus and the one about the woman and the well, show us two different types of sinners. Two different types. There are good sinners and there are bad sinners. Now that designation is more for us than it is for God because with God there are no good sinners. But there are some who think that they are better in God's eyes than others and then there are some that just know that they are bad sinners. So we have a contrast between those two in John 3 and John 4. And I've chosen this passage, John chapter 4, because of Mother's Day. I I wanted a story that had to deal with women. And this is really a great story, and I hope that it's beneficial to you. Uh, It shows a woman who was brought to faith in Christ, a woman whose life was changed. She started out as a very poor example. And then when she met the Lord, all things were changed for her. And then she became a great witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do hope that that's something that every woman in Bram Baptist Church, as well as the men, would be happy to pattern their lives after. Now, we read the whole story, 
just a few minutes ago. And I, and I did that in order to save some time for this part of the message. Now, I, I'm not sure, but maybe last Sunday night when, when Pastor Litzenberg was preaching, remember how he started off preaching? He said, I don't preach 45-minute sermons. And I don't know if that was chastisement for me or what it was. But uh, so I decided to read the passage during the congregational reading to save me some time. So uh, maybe we won't go over time today. Don't count on it, but maybe we won't. But we did read the story just a few minutes ago. And uh, so we'll begin here now with just a, a brief overview of the beginning of this passage. Now, in that fourth chapter, it tells us that Jesus was in Judea. And that he had gone there from Galilee to attend the the Passover feast at Jerusalem. He was there to celebrate it. And it was at this time that he had his first major confrontation with the Jewish leaders. He went into the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers. And in his righteous anger, his indignation, he drove out these evil men that were buying and selling in the temple. Now, we've also studied a similar passage of that in the Gospel of Matthew, but that happened at the end of Jesus' life. It was during the Passion Week, just a few days before Jesus was crucified, and he went into the temple, he did the very same thing. He overturned the tables of the money changers. By then, they'd set them all back up, and they were back at their practices again. And he went in, and he turned over those tables, and he drove those people out again. And so those are two major confrontations that he had with the Jewish leaders at the temple. Now, at the time of the Passover, this was when he had his encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And I don't have time to preach Nicodemus today. That's a great passage, but we won't do that. But he had that encounter with Nicodemus, and then after that, there arose some questions about baptism. The Bible says that John the Baptist baptized. We know that. John's disciples baptized. The the disciples of Jesus baptized. But we have this kind of a peculiar little note there that says, but Jesus himself baptized not. And we might wonder, well, baptism is so important. We know that it doesn't save people, but we do know that it's important. We do know that it's been commanded by God. Why didn't Jesus baptize people? Well, we might want to talk about that at a later time. If you have questions about it, maybe we can discuss why Jesus never baptized anyone. But after this little discussion went on, it was then that Jesus decided that he would leave Judea and he would go back to Galilee and start this long Galilean ministry that we've been talking about for these many, many, many months in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is a story that occurs between those two times, from the time he was in Judea and then going to Galilee. And what he decided to do was that he would go into the country of Samaria. He went through Samaria. And so thus we have this story of the Samaritan woman, a great story about living water and everlasting salvation and worshiping God and witnessing to others. And those are some key words that you might want to remember as we go through this. The words of of living and everlasting and worshiping and witnessing. Those are key words that we find in John chapter 4. Now today what I'd like to do is to uh, take a little bit of time to develop this story and talk to you about some great truths that come out of this passage. And it is a message for women, that's the intention today, but I don't want the men to tune this out because I do think that we can learn something from it. 
Now first, in your outline today, I'd like to talk to you about the priority of Jesus' plan. Verse number 3 says that Jesus left Judea and he departed into Galilee. Now if you're going to go from Judea to Galilee, you have some traveling to do. And you have to choose the route that you want to take. And we see here that in verse 4, it says that he must, needs, go through Samaria. And as you read that, you might get the impression that, well, there is no other way to get to Galilee. You, you have to go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. He must needs go that way. And we wonder, why must he needs go that way? Is there only one way to go? Well, perhaps there may be mountains on one side or the other that are too high to cross or bodies of water that are too large to navigate. And so why does it say that he must needs go through Samaria? Samaria just happens to be the shortest route between Judea and Galilee. And having gone that way, I can assure you that there aren't any barriers that would stop you from going another way. If I want to go through to San Francisco, I can go straight down Highway 101 and go through Petaluma, then uh, Novato, and then go through San Rafael and so on, and I can end up in San Francisco. And that's the shortest route to get from here to there. I could choose to go another way if I want to, but that is the shortest route. And so when the Bible says here that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, it's not because of a geographical limitation. It's not because this is a governmental thing. There's no one who said, well, you can't get to Galilee any other way than to go this way. You must go through Samaria. We're not talking about a must here of any kind of temporal necessity. But rather, what this is, is a must of divine priority. There was something that Jesus needed to do. There was a divine priority in this, a divine necessity. Now, often in the Gospel of, of John, Jesus speaks of his divine necessities. You may remember that in verse 14 of chapter 3, that Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, be lifted up. In chapter 9, and verse number 4, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. In chapter 10, and verse 16, he said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now, in all of those cases, we're talking about divine necessities. And this is one of those. He must, needs, go through Samaria. But why is that? Well, it's because of the person of his plan. The must is this woman who is in Samaria. And the must is that there was a necessity that this woman should hear the gospel and be saved. Now, I want to tell you something that's peculiar about that. When he left Judea, he had this particular woman on his mind. And I would like to add to that, that he had this woman on his mind from all eternity. That he knew who she was. And there is an intention here from eternity past that he would find this woman and that he would speak to her and that he would save her. And we know this because he is the omniscient God. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, he knew all about her. 
And if you're taking notes today, you can just underline or capitalize the all because he knew everything there was to know about her. And so he had this priority that he would go through Samaria because he had a plan that he was going to save this poor woman and to make an example of her and show that he has power over the souls of every person. And that when Christ makes it his priority to save any individual, you can be sure of this, that nothing but salvation will be the result of it. When he sets his heart on that person and he decides that he's going to save them, salvation will come. And so Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And he didn't go that way because it was the quickest route. He did this because it was in the divine plan. There's somebody that needs to be saved. And in fact, there were a lot of somebodies that needed to be saved because before this story is through, a whole town had been changed. Now going just a little bit further into the text, we see in verse number 5 the place in Samaria where he was going. That's the place of the plan. And the place was the town of Sychar, which the Bible says here was near to a parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And the gift of this ground is something that would occur or did occur about 17 centuries before this. And in this place, it says, Jacob had dug a well. Now, the Old Testament doesn't tell us about this particular well, but John confirms it here, that Jacob dug it. The Jews and the Samaritans had a long-standing tradition that had been passed down from century to century that said that Jacob had dug this well. And in the past, this was a well that belonged to all of Israel. And that's because it's part of the ground that was promised by God to Moses and Joshua when they divided up the different parts of Israel and gave it to the children of Israel. But at this time, at the time that Jesus is there, this is foreign territory, so to speak. This is territory that Jews did not want to set foot in even if a major part of their history had taken place in this part of, of the overall part of Israel, this was a place they dare not go. They didn't want to step foot in Samaria. Now the problem here is that the Samaritans date back to the time that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was at that time that Israel had departed from the living God. They were worshiping idols and because of God's chastisement upon them, he allowed the Assyrians to come and to conquer them and to take them into captivity. And then these people were returned to the land and they intermarried with the Assyrians. And so the Samaritans are a mixed breed of people, a mixture between Assyrians and Jews. And as far as the other Jews were concerned, these people were the most unholy group of people that you could find. A mixed breed that they didn't have anything to do with. As far as they were concerned, they were unholy, they were defiled, they were worse than dogs. And even to step foot into Samaria, where Samaritans lived and they walked, that was disgusting to a Jew. And so what the Jews would do was to avoid Samaria at all costs. And this is really the reason the Bible points this out, that Jesus must needs go through Samaria because Jews normally wouldn't go that way. Usually they would go to the east of the Jordan River and they would go up through Perea when they wanted to go to Galilee. They were not going to pass through this country of Samaria. And that just makes all of this 
the more curious because Jesus says, or the Bible says, he must needs go. And as far as Jews were concerned, there was never a must that they would go through Samaria. Now next I'd like to consider the water that was exchanged for wickedness. Jesus went through Samaria. He went to Sychar, and with the dust and the dry climate of that region and with the tiredness of the travel, he came and he sat down on the side of Jacob's well. It was the sixth hour, that's about noon, and as he sat there, along came this Samaritan woman to draw water out of the well. And when she came, Jesus struck up a conversation with her, and he asked her for a drink of water. Now, folks, I have to tell you that what we have here is a compounding problem. Jesus was in Samaria, and that's bad. He spoke to a woman, and that was bad, because Jewish men would not normally have conversations with women like this. The women had no status, and that didn't make any difference if she was a Samaritan or if she was Martha Washington, Betsy Ross, or Florence Nightingale. The, the Jews just did not have these kinds of conversations with any woman. And, and we see that this is what Jesus did. He's in Samaria, he spoke to the woman, and then he asked for a drink. And that was triple bad. Actually, asking for the drink was the worst thing that he could do. That was the very worst that he could do, and I'll tell you why. You remember that series of sermons that I preached from Matthew 23 on the woes? You remember that? Here's one of those. Matthew 23, verse 25, when Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. And the reason that Jesus said that to them was because they were very careful not to drink from a cup or to eat from a plate that had not been perfectly purified according to the Jewish law. There was a ceremony that they had to go through, and they had to make sure that everything that they ate from was in strict compliance with those laws. And what we're talking about is the things that they owned, the very own things that were theirs, the things that they kept in the cupboard to eat from, to drink from. When they went to the cupboard to get out the Melmac, they had to be sure that it was absolutely kosher. It had to meet all of the laws of the Jews. Now get the picture that we have here. Here is Jesus in Samaria speaking to a Samaritan woman and asking to drink from her water pot. Now you put all of that together and that was the nastiest, most disgusting thing that Jesus could do. It would be better to drink after a dog than to do this. And you know, I don't want to drink after a dog, do you? I know where a dog's licked. I don't want to drink after a dog. And I don't want a dog kissing me either. I know some people don't mind that, but I don't want a dog kissing me. I know where the tongue's been. Well, this is worse. Actually worse than that. Because of who she was, where she lived, and because she was unclean. And here's the thing about it. The Samaritan woman knew this. She was shocked. Absolutely shocked because she knew what Jews thought. In verse number 7, Jesus said, give me a drink. And she was dumbfounded by this because she didn't even know what he was doing there in the first place. And so in verse number 9, she said, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, folks, that's putting it mildly. The Jews have no dealings, zip, nada, nothing, absolutely 
zero to do with Samaritans. And especially there's no dealing with Samaritan women. There's no drinking out of their water pots. But I have to remind you here that this is the divine prerogative. That in the eyes of God, there is none of us that measures up. None of us is any better than anyone else. And it doesn't make any difference if you are a Jew who is a do-gooder or if you are a Samaritan who's lower than the belly of a snake. It doesn't matter. None of us are good in God's eyes. Now, folks, salvation is the divine prerogative. And what God does, he bestows that salvation on whomever he will. And he does that by his marvelous grace. There's not a one of us that would ever merit the grace of God. And so it makes no difference at all where you are on the social scale and whether you're climbing that ladder or you're not climbing that ladder. It makes no difference at all to God. We all need to be saved and only Jesus Christ is the one who can do it. And so what he does, he sees into the heart of all people and he sees that all of us are desperately wicked and all the things that you think are success, he calls failure. None of it measures up. And when Jesus looked at this woman, I don't think he saw her any differently than he did one of the best Pharisees. Both needed to be saved. And you're not going to get close to God by what you do. The only way you'll ever get close to him is through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can bring you close to God. Now this wonderful truth is pointed out in verse number 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now she was reluctant at first to give him anything. She's the one who starts bringing up the objections. First it's her gender, then it's her race, later it's going to be her religion. And Jesus said, none of that matters. Even if you can improve upon the place where you live, even if you can change your gender, and I'm not going to get into that today, but even if you could do that, it really doesn't make any difference. And that's because salvation is not in those things. Salvation is purely a gift from God. Salvation comes from God. And so you've got to stop thinking that you're good enough to get it. And so often we hear people ask this, and I've had them ask me many times, what do I need to change to be saved? You don't have to change anything. And that's because Christ is the one who does the changing. If you come to him and you think that changing something is going to make you right with him, you've got the wrong picture. It's all wrong. Only Christ can change you. The change that God makes is the only one that matters. So what Jesus did here was to offer her living water. Now, he wasn't after the physical things. She might have thought that at first. Or at least she thought there's something physical here that may turn into something supernatural or something spiritual. And she asked him, where are you going to get this living water? This well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with. But did you notice that Jesus said, all you have to do is ask? And he doesn't tell her to worry about the logistics of it. He says, don't worry that I don't have anything to draw with. Don't worry about how this happens. Don't worry that you haven't read the Bible 27 times. Don't worry that you don't have full understanding of justification and sanctification. You know nothing about election. You know nothing about the sovereignty of God. Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about the theology of how it happens. 
right now, all that you need to do is to believe and to ask for this. And that asking is the show of faith, and that's what it takes to get a drink of living water. Now let me point out something to you. Jesus says in verse 13, Whomsoever drinketh of this water, and he means the water that's in the well, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. And then in verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He says a well of water springing up. Now let me just point out to you again where they were. They're in Samaria. To the north of them, there is this large body of water that's called the Sea of Galilee. And that's actually a bulge in the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows into it and it starts to collect and it forms this huge lake. And then the water flows out of it at the south end of the Sea of Galilee. On the other end is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea and there the water is not fresh. There the water is thick with minerals and with brine. There aren't any fish that can live there. And again, I can tell you by experience that when you get into that water, the only thing you think of is how can I get it off of me? Because you can feel it. It's nasty. Now, I don't know why people go to the Sea of Galilee and the tourists out there, you know, they... Where's Brother Gary? He's already stepped out, so I can say this. The tourists, the tourists down there, you know, they, they get in their swimming trunks and got an inner tube and go out on the Sea of Galilee, and they come back, and all they can think of is getting in a shower and getting that stuff off. It's terrible. Let me tell you, it's terrible. I, I don't like that feeling of that nasty water being on my skin. Now, the reason I'm pointing you out, this out to you is that here was this woman. She's standing between life and death. She's standing in the middle between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And I think in that that we can find a spiritual application. That every one of us in this life, we are standing between eternal life and eternal death. We're in the middle between those two. And we have to choose between those two. And don't worry about my statement for right now. You can figure out the theology of all of that later. You have to make a choice between eternal life and eternal death. Now what Jesus does to this woman is to offer eternal life. And he says there's living water. And the message here is if you choose life by faith, he will give you a drink of that water. And you'll never have to ask for it a second time. You'll never thirst if you take this water because he fills all the longings of your soul and he makes you secure in him. You never have to go back to the well again. Well, unfortunately, the woman hadn't yet reached spiritual understanding. She wanted the water and she wanted the gift. She wanted to be without her thirst. But here's the thing. There's a matter of sin. There's a matter of sin that has to be dealt with. Faith is only one side of the coin. There's still another matter, and the matter is sin. Now, I do know that there are many preachers that stand in pulpits, and they preach faith. And they tell you you need to have faith, faith in this or faith in that. You just have to have faith. And they never say anything at all about recognizing our sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And sin is dealt with in repentance. And so before Jesus was ready to give her living water, 
He wanted to deal with her sin. Now let's take a look at how this takes shape. She asked for water in verse number 15, and then Jesus came back with something that seems to be totally unrelated. He said, go and call your husband. Now what does that have to do anything? You, you ladies know that when you want something, you don't go call your husband. That's not probably the best place to go. But that's what Jesus said, go call your husband. Why does he say that? Why? Go call your husband. Well, what he's about to do here is to bring her face to face with her sin. And she wasn't yet ready to admit her sin. And so you know what she said? I have no husband. Now, that's what you call a technical truth. Yes, she didn't have a husband, but there is a reason why that she didn't want to bring up all of her troubles to this man that she'd just met. I mean, she was at the well at this hour because she couldn't get anyone to go with her. She was at the well at this hour because nobody wanted to go with this woman. She showed up at this hour because it... If she'd come at any other time, the women would scatter who came there because of her presence or the terrible feeling of the whispers and the stares would be unbearable to her. And so she chose to come to the well at noon, the hottest time of the day when nobody goes to the well. Now, what is the problem here? Well, Jesus lays it out in verse number 18, end of 17 and 18. Thou hast well said... I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is or now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. Now according to his divine law, she had five husbands that she had divorced, and the man that she was living within was not her husband. Now we have a word or a term for that. We call it sexual promiscuity. And she wasn't ready to go into her seedy background. But here's the thing about this. She didn't have to. She didn't have to go into it. And that's because he already knew it. He already knew everything there was to know about her. He is the omniscient God. And what this does, it just adds to the peculiarities of the story because she's Samaritan, she is a Samaritan, she is a woman, she is a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, but she is of the wickedest sort of Gentiles. And yet Jesus still said, give me a drink from your water pot. Now, at this point, she had to be thinking about all of that. He knows what I have done. He's just told her all the intimate details of her life. And he knew those things, and still he conversed with her, and still he wanted a drink of water, and that had to leave her totally puzzled. How could this be happening to her? And doesn't that just show us how compassionate that Jesus is? He's not looking for what we can do for him. He's not looking for good people to come and save. He's not looking for what we can do. He, he wants to do for us. He was willing to do for us when we had no desire to do anything for him. And this is what the Bible says, that when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and it tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And she was never going to come to him with her sin. And so what he did was to go into her heart and to draw them out. And I want you to see what is the typical response when people have to deal with the uncomfortable exposure of sin. In verse number 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, 
And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now this, for those of you who have ever been out soul winning, that's what's called a diversion. She immediately changed the subject. Divorce, multiple counts of adultery, on top of that fornication, those are subjects too hot to handle at this time. And so she preferred to change the subject. She says, let's talk about something else. And folks, that's typical. We see it all the time in gospel presentations. When the matter swings to sin, people want to swing the conversation to something else. And one of the things they often do is since you're there to talk to them about the Lord, then they want to talk about religion. And they'll bring up everything imaginable about religion. And they'll want questions answered that have nothing at all to do with the subject at hand. And this is what the woman does here. What she tried to do was to draw Jesus into this long-standing religious argument between Jews and Samaritans. And this is what people do. They ask questions that are not related. And I don't have time to go into the history of this, but there, there was a difference between where the Jews and the Samaritans believed that you ought to worship. They argued about that. Do you worship at Jerusalem, where the temple is, as the Jews do? Or do you worship at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had set up their place of worship? And in fact, if you go to Samaria today, there's still a place on Mount Gerizim where there are Samaritans that go to worship. So the long-standing argument is which one of these is the place where people ought to worship. Now, just like... The Samaritans were half-breeds in their race. They were also half-breeds in their religion. What they had was a cross between paganism and Judaism. They had a twisted perversion of Judaism in which they believed some parts of the scriptures, but they didn't believe them all. And the part that they believed was the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. That's the part that they believed. Now, her question is a diversion... But I like the question because she inadvertently brought up a very important principle. And that's our third point today, and that is that worship should be a priority for women. Now, she may have been a sinner and a bad sinner at that, but she was interested in worship. And her question about worship with her sin looming in the background seems very odd to us, but it does point out the difference between Jewish worship and Samaritan worship. As you know, the Jews were very proud. They were proud of their own accomplishments. They were self-righteous. And what they tried to do was to keep people away from worship. They didn't want sinners coming to worship. Now, the Samaritans, on the other hand, were not as prideful. And so she is still interested in the theological questions of the day. And here is Jesus who has just told her all things that, about her that someone else, no one else who didn't know her could know. And so she thought he might know the answer then to this long-standing question. Who is right about worship? Is it Jews or Samaritans? Well, she was evading the real question of sin, and Jesus would have none of it. Look what he says, verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now what he's just told her is that worship is not a place. Worship is not a place. Worship is a person. And it starts with you knowing that person 
in your heart. And you have to know the person, the truth of that person in your heart before you ever hope to worship God. Jesus said God is a spirit and Jesus who was standing there speaking to her was the express image of the invisible spirit God. That's a profound answer. A very profound answer. One that I don't think that she really had any understanding of. She may not have understood that. But she did understand something. She understood that her religion taught her that there was a Messiah that was coming. And so we might ask, well, how did she know that there is a Messiah? Because the Samaritans believed only the first five books of the Bible. Well, let's see if we can find an answer to that question. Turn over a page or two to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and let's see what Jesus has to say about the topic. John 5, verse number 45, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Now, he's saying here, I don't have to accuse you for not believing. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. Why? For he wrote of me. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's all he wrote. And here Jesus says, he wrote of me. And you say, wait a minute. Well, what do you, what do you mean? How did Moses write about Jesus? Well, what about Genesis 3.15? And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's God speaking to Satan. That's what we call the proto-evangelium the Proto-Evangelium, and it's about a Messiah who was coming who would crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. What about Deuteronomy 18.18? 18? God speaking to Moses, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, that is to Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. That prophet is Jesus Christ. Now, they knew about the Messiah, even though their understanding of him wasn't very good. Is that really something for us to complain about? I mean, the Jews knew about the Messiah, too. They had the entire Old Testament scriptures, and they didn't understand him very well. Now, notice verse number 25 and what she did understand. John 4:25. The woman saith unto him... I know that Messiah cometh, which is called the Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Now, bingo, folks. Is it all right to say bingo in a Baptist church? Some of you uh, Roman Catholics may feel a little uncomfortable right now. But bingo. I mean, wh what is it that Jesus was trying to lead her to in this whole conversation? He knew what she believed and who had just told her all things. The Messiah will tell us all things. And what did he just do? He just told her what nobody else could know about her. I mean, how much more proof do you need than this? And so Jesus said, I that speak unto you am he. Did you know this? That that is the clearest statement that Jesus made about being the Messiah anywhere in the scriptures until... It came to the last week of his life. And this was when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and he was taken to the high priest Caiaphas, Caiaphas to be tried in that mock trial. And this is what takes place in Mark 14, 60. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we of further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now think about this. Jesus made his clearest statement of deity to a lowly Samaritan woman. He said it to a despised, adulterous Samaritan woman who is about as low as you can go. And then he said it to the chief priest who was as high as you can go. And I tell you, I don't think he saw much of a difference between the two. Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you are the Pope or a porn star. Both of those need to be saved. So it doesn't matter to him. Jesus doesn't see any difference between the two. And the important thing is here that you and I need to be saved. We're the ones that are caught in the middle, all the way from the woman at the well to Caiaphas the high priest. We're in the middle of all that encompassing number of people. We all need to be saved. Worship is a priority, and Jesus just told her who is to be worshipped. He is the Messiah. Now let's go down to verses 28 through 30. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now here's the last point for today, and that is the mission to the men. Now if you are a stubborn man, the last thing that you want is for a woman to come and tell you very much of anything. She was an outcast, and she was lonely. She had no respect, but there was none of that that mattered. She put down her water pot and forgot all about that. I mean, the heavy water pot would have done nothing but slow her down, and so she just put down the water pot, and she hurriedly went into the city, and she told the men. And I always wondered, what men are these that she told? Are these the same that she hung out with because she was such a loose woman? Did she go and tell the five husbands that she had before? I, I think there's such excitement in her, in her voice that when she came screaming into town, everybody noticed what had happened to her. Everybody wanted to hear about this. Verse 29, she says, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? When the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things, and this guy has just told me all things. And what she didn't need was a theology class to move her to belief. And she didn't need a soul winning class to, to get her to go and tell somebody. She did what believers do. She wanted to share the message that she had heard with somebody else. And so she did. She told them. She told them and they believed because of what she said. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. Folks, here's the thing. A changed life is a powerful witness. When this dirty secret that she wanted to keep hid from everybody that didn't know her, when that whole thing was out of the closet, she owned the sin and then she knew that she had been forgiven. She was changed. And people could see the change. 
It was so dramatic that she wasn't withdrawn any longer. She wasn't ashamed any longer. She had been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and she had received a drink of water from the fountain of life. It was different. And then others came. They heard Jesus and they believed. Verse 40, And so when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy sayings, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So let me finish by saying this, ladies. Uh, this is not a story that was given so I could find a, a wicked woman who had done everything imaginable and start to compare her to some of you. That's not the purpose of finding the story. I, I told you this to point out to you that all of us are sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. The best of us, like Nicodemus, who is highly educated, very religious, a social icon, he needed to be saved. And the worst of sinners, the Samaritan outcast, the woman was so bad that she couldn't get anybody to go to the well with her, she also needed to be saved. And here's the great thing about it. Jesus will save anyone who will take this free gift of living water. He'll cleanse you and he will change you and he will satisfy you and he will make you a true worshiper of him. And so I invite you to trust him because there is no other way. And if today you feel Jesus sitting at the well of your heart, if you feel him sitting there, then you just know this, that you are his divine priority. Jesus has come to save sinners, and you are a sinner, which means Jesus has come to save you. There is a divine must here. There is none other name given among men or among women whereby we must be saved. And that is Jesus Christ. Turn to him, take a drink of the living water, and the great thing is, all you have to do is ask. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the story that we read this morning. For thousands of years, this story has been told and retold, and it never stops to show us the amazing grace of God for sinners. Lord, that you came into this world to save sinners and all of us are. It doesn't matter how bad we are or even how good that we think we are. We need to be saved. And we thank you for the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ who came and gave his life for us. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to some heart today. Draw them close to you. Help them to understand they need the living water that only you can give. They stand between life and death and they can have that everlasting life even at this very moment. Speak to someone today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.